Our topic today is maybe a bit tricky because it can be so subtle and hard to spot in terms of how it affects how we follow Jesus, but it's a really important topic even so. It's a concept called syncretism. Syncretism, for those of you not familiar with the word, is used to describe broadly when the beliefs, traditions, language, and other features of a culture get introduced into a new place and then mix with the indigenous beliefs, traditions, language, and cultural features. Think, for example, of the Spanish conquistadors coming to Central and South America, leading to the culture that we see there today that is neither fully like Spanish culture nor like the indigenous culture that predated the invasion. There are ways in which this is a good thing, or at least a neutral thing. And then there are ways that this is deeply problematic, with the culture of the less powerful people being erased or abused by the more powerful. For our purposes today, we're going to be thinking about a particular form of syncretism, one that has to do with the ways that following Jesus gets mixed with the culture of a place. This is inevitable, of course, and again, not necessarily a bad thing. The most obvious example being that the, the way that the beliefs and stories of Christianity get translated into the languages of nations and tribes and people groups other than the original Hellenistic Jews of the first century Roman Empire. You know, like for us. That we know about this Jesus at all is due in part to the syncretism that is translating into English the stories of the Jewish people from Abraham through Jesus. This is a good form of syncretism, making the good news accessible to new peoples and new nations. The ways that worship music has changed through the centuries is another example of syncretism, with the popular music of each culture and era being used as the vehicle through which the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus can be sung about. The tunes to some of what we know as old-fashioned stodgy hymns, as some of you may know, were originally drinking songs heard at the local pub. This is a neutral form of syncretism. Despite the hyperventilating of certain people in every generation about the moral degradation of singing about Jesus using musical forms also used by other people to sing about drugs and sex. But, as I alluded to earlier, there are also negative versions of syncretism. All the children's Bibles that are published for use in a multicultural nation like America that feature a blue-eyed white Jesus, for example. And in fact, that example, as seemingly silly as it is, actually gives us a good working definition of when syncretism moves from good-slash-neutral and into problematic territory. Syncretism is a problem when it involves us looking at the world around us and assuming that God is just like that. Looking at the world around us, how it works, its logic, its assumptions, its ways, and assuming God is just like that. So when Northern European is the dominant ethnicity, God is portrayed in art as if they were a Northern European, when in fact God has no ethnicity and Jesus, at least, was brown-skinned and Semitic. When hard-working, rugged individualism is the philosophy of the day, and so we say things like, God helps those who help themselves, while the Bible tells a story of mutual care and support for the vulnerable. When we live in a culture that prizes masculinity and violence and assumes God is violent and masculine too, while Jesus is portrayed as meek, peaceful. When we as a culture deify the nuclear family and so see Christian values as synonymous with family values, whereas Jesus invites us into a very different form of family. When the business world demands efficiency and scale and endless work, and so we think God must demand those things of us too, even as Jesus tells us to come to him and find rest and abundant life. When personal success is equated with wealth and fame and influence, 
But the Bible tells us that true life is found when we live quietly, faithful, sacrificial lives. The problem with syncretism arises when the Jesus scripture tells us about gets overshadowed by our cultural assumptions, such that he begins to look more like us rather than us looking more like him. The problem with syncretism arises when the true God of the Bible starts getting eclipsed in our minds and hearts by a false God, an idol, an empty God with empty promises. Because as you've heard me say, if you've listened to many of our podcasts at all, the problem with false gods is that they don't come through. They promise life, but in the end, there is no life there. They promise fulfillment, but deliver only endless striving after a perfection perpetually out of reach. They promise joy, but produce only envy of those appearing more joyous than we are. They promise ease, but it comes at the cost of endless anxiety. They promise safety, but bring us only fear of the dangers lurking around each corner. We're in this series looking at some of the ways our world gets in the way of us living the joyful and sustainable life that Jesus offers, maybe especially in the holiday season. And syncretism is something of a root cause of many of the things that we have and will be talking about in this series. It is when the idols of our culture get disguised, fooling us into thinking that this is what our God must be like. In the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel make their way quickly to Mount Sinai after Yahweh God frees them from slavery in Egypt. And there God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which begin like this. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God is forbidding here, in our terms, syncretism. Even if you cling to Yahweh alone, like the first commandment says, the way in which you cling to them cannot be through making an image, an idol to represent Yahweh, because doing so would warp in the people's mind who their God was, making them inevitably associate Yahweh with the way the world around them works and the gods of the other nations. But Yahweh is different from, separate from, unique, holy. Later, the story tells us that as God is giving these commands to Moses, the people are going to Moses's brother, Aaron. This is what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took these from them formed them in a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to Yahweh. The people come to Aaron asking him to make gods for us. They are ready to abandon Yahweh completely. Aaron, though, offers syncretism instead. He quite clearly does not see himself as making a new God, so much as crafting an image of Yahweh. Except this image looks an awful lot like the cultural expectations of the people. Golden, shiny, powerful. God's anger flares up and Moses destroys the calf after God threatens to destroy the people altogether and start over again through Moses alone with Moses needing to talk God off the proverbial ledge. But that's a topic for another sermon. 
But this, God's great anger at syncretism, sometimes throws us off, confuses us. Why is God so angry? But let's return to the Ten Commandments, to the verses that I cut off and didn't read. At first, I thought when I was doing the sermon, maybe I just don't read these ones because they kind of open up a whole can of worms. But then I realized that these verses might be the key to us understanding what's going on. This is picking up the second commandment again in verse four. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's where I stopped before. This is what it continues to say. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. The reason given for not making an idol is that Yahweh is a jealous God, which to our ears might sound a bit immature of Yahweh. Like, get over yourself, God. Why can't this be an open relationship here? Later in the law, the people of Israel are told repeatedly to completely destroy all the religious paraphernalia of the pagans within their lands, to tear down the altars to Baal and the poles dedicated to Asherah and the holy sites associated with these and other pagan gods and goddesses. Why? Why destroy all the other worship sites? Why is Yahweh a jealous God? What I'd like to suggest is that it is not down to Yahweh's dysfunctional, possessive nature, but that this is grace. God knows the pull that syncretism has for us. The ways that the presence of these false gods around us starts to cause false ideas about who the true God is to insinuate themselves into our minds and hearts. And God knows what awaits us if we follow those false gods down the paths that they invite us to walk. This Yahweh is the same as the Jesus who invites us to take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The burden of the false gods is heavy. They drag us down and exhaust us. Joyful and sustainable life are not to be found there. And so God commands us not to blur their character with the character of the world around us, to avoid looking at the way our world works and assigning those things to God. Instead, to follow the true God alone, unmixed with the gods of frenzy and consumerism and image and efficiency and violence and nationalism and pleasure and safety and ease. But how do we do that when syncretism is so easy to get sucked into, when the gods and the logic of the world around us is so tempting, and when the false gods of syncretism do what all false gods do and fail us? We don't live in the world of the Old Testament, after all, where we can tear down the Asherah poles and burn the altars to Baal, removing at least temporarily the temptation to mix Yahweh with the pagan gods. We live more in the time of the New Testament, where the pagan gods and their temples are all around us, in every shopping center, every commercial break, every office building. To quote Mad-Eye Moody, it requires constant vigilance. Here, though, are a few suggestions, all of which I'll acknowledge up front can go badly wrong but when done well, offer us a buffer against the syncretism of the world and help us to get to know more deeply the true God. First, the Bible. What a shocker that I'm ending a sermon with a defense of reading and studying scripture. (laughs) I'll give you all a minute to recover. In all seriousness, though, the very difficulty of distinguishing the subtle creep of syncretism is what makes the Bible so important. When read and studied correctly, it provides us a portrait of the character of the true God. 
As we read the stories of Yahweh and Jesus, we see who our God is. And the more we get to know who our God is, the more we are able to see the corruptions that are offered to us by the world for what they really are. This is why we will continue to dig into the Bible together as a church community, allowing it to challenge and correct and nurture our understanding of who the God we're supposed to reflect to the world really is. Second, therapy. Sometimes false stories about who God is get so entrenched in our minds that we find it really hard to shake them. A good therapist is able to challenge those entrenched ways of thinking to say, but what if that story isn't true and you could let go of it? What if God's actually like this, not that? Opening us up to be able to re-examine whether the God we have been following might need to be updated to match who the Bible tells us the true God is. And then third, relationships. The challenge of syncretism is one of the reasons that I continue to believe in the together part of following Jesus into the world together. It is in our relationships with others who are also committed to following the true God that our own assumptions get challenged, that we're exposed to different perspectives on and stories about who God is and how God has worked in the lives of one another. And it's in those relationships that we can be lovingly corrected when it's needed, challenged to explore more deeply who Jesus is and what following him might mean for us. So how do we respond and protect our minds and our hearts from the syncretism of our culture? Get to know the God of the Bible, go to therapy if need be, and surround ourselves with others who are also trying to follow the same Jesus, who can help reflect to us the Jesus that we reflect to the world.